listening to All That Matters from CGSR. I'm Josh Turpin. And I'm Gwen Mann. Gwen, what shows are you watching these days? Well, I am waiting for season I just finished uh, Narcos on Netflix online, obviously. Oh, that's cool. You know, it's great being able to watch stuff anytime online. Being able to rush through a whole season instead of waiting every week for it to come out at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 p.m. Central. But there is still one really annoying thing between us and our shows. The connection. I hate it when the connection can't keep up and you have to wait while it's buffering. It seems like no matter how much technology changes the way we get media, there's also, um, there's always like something in between us and the artists that who make it. Just sometimes we don't notice until we get the little spinning wheel telling us to wait and wait. Well, All That Matters is a weekly show about arts and culture around Alberta. Each week we take small bites out of a big question. Today we're talking about gatekeepers. What are the hoops artists have to jump through to get art out to us? And what are the trade-offs to going around them? We'll talk to Edmonton author Leif Gregerson about whether it's worth it to self-publish. And we'll hear what musicians can do when they're forced to, quote, suckle at the teat of capitalism, unquote. So first up, there's a multitude of emerging musicians out there with incredible talent waiting to be heard and discovered. Sadly, not a lot of them are seen and heard by the public because they are not signed with a record label. Weird Canada provides a platform for these obscure artists to showcase their talents to the rest of us. I was able to chat with Weird Canada Executive Director Marie LeBlanc Flanagan about what kind of work she does, what Weird Canada is all about, and how these try to serve musicians and music fans. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today, Marie. Let's start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So my name is Marie LeBlanc Flanagan. I was born in Perth, Ontario, and I've lived kind of all over Canada. I mostly have worked in social enterprises and in projects and initiatives related to the arts. Mm-hmm. So how did Weird Canada come about? In 2009, uh, uh, it came out of campus radio, actually. So it was uh, Aaron Levin, who's still involved in Weird Canada to a small capacity, and some other music directors at stations around Canada, uh, as well as just some other music fans uh, who wanted to get together and create a platform where they could enthuse about physically released DIY and emerging music. There wasn't really another space where this was happening, and there were there were a lot of exciting releases happening around that time in 2009, and I think they just wanted somewhere where they could celebrate that. With this weird arts initiatives, um, it exists to encourage, connect, and document creative expression across Canada. Uh, so what is it encouraging, or rather, what is it able to do for artists? Yeah, well, enthusiasm about art has always been a very important part of what weird is and what we want to be. We've never really been a platform for critique. Uh, I think there's a lot of value in in artistic critique in environments where it's done for the purpose of creating growth or helping people grow and stretch and and change. Um, but Weird Canada has always been about enthusiasm. It's been about channeling that feeling when you go to a friend's house and they can't wait for you to get there because they want to throw on a record or, or you know even a YouTube video. And they want, they want to play something for you and share it with you and really, like, share that feeling. 
uh, that's always been a big part of what weird is and what weird wants to be is is that is that that expression of enthusiasm because I think a lot of growth and a lot of you know, mind stretching and a lot of community stretching and relationship building comes out of these environments where we feel safe and where we feel safe and excited about what we're talking about. And you know, behind the scenes, behind the curtains of Weird Canada, there's a really strong push for new volunteers. Sometimes they come in and they want to make fun of something. And we might you know, tease each other a bit, but it's really important uh, for us as a community to understand that creative expression is very personal and it's a very subjective. Uh, so something that may not resonate with one person will resonate with another. And, uh, and that, that enthusiasm has always been this thread that ties us together in our vision that we're all wanting more people to creatively express and more people to creatively express in a challenging way. And the ones who are creatively expressing to challenge themselves to do kind of like more interesting, more challenging, to make more challenging sounds. Because uh, I think it's a really good way to grow as individuals and as a community. So aside from Weird Canada, there was also Weird Distro that I heard about. And it's been also attracting a lot of press. So can you elaborate a little bit more about what Weird Distro does and the relationship between the two? Yeah, so um, Weird Arts Initiatives. Weird Arts Initiatives is a nonprofit, which is an umbrella for all these other projects. So Weird Distro is one of those projects. WeirdCanada.com is one of those projects. We have Weird Databases, which is one of those projects. We have a lot of things that kind of fit under the umbrella. So Weird Distro is, when I spoke earlier about people coming in and saying what they wanted us to be, Weird Distro was one of those objectives. It was one of those projects. And the vision for it was, was this. So we identified a problem, um, which is, I think, where most projects should start, identifying like a gap or a problem. And we saw this problem where there was all this amazing, like waves and waves of amazing physically released music coming out uh, in Canada, all across Canada. And all these people who were very excited about that music and wanting to purchase it and hold it and play it and listen to it and uh, disconnect between the two. So Bandcamp is serving, and SoundCloud, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, some other platforms, MySpace, like seven years ago, were maybe longer now, actually, but they were serving to bridge that platform in a digital sense, but there wasn't really something to bridge to bridge the gap between the people who are making the music and the people who are buying the music in a physical sense. So there were all these incredible artists making cassettes and LPs and CDs and, and strange zine things and, and people who wanted it, but there was no way for them to kind of get it to each other. Now, you can sell things on Bandcamp, but it's really hard when you're an artist who's already working probably full-time at some kitchen or cafe or call center to make your music and and you're touring and you're trying to do all this stuff and then trying to package up a single LP to mail off to someone when you're actually your CD your LPs are in Halifax and you're in Edmonton you're on a tour it's very difficult so our hope was to create this one-stop shop where individuals who are excited about these kinds of physically released music and record stores who are excited about this physically released music could just purchase it. And, and artists and labels, small DIY micro-labels, could use the service to reach those people. 
what do you think are the trade-offs for artists fighting to get into the traditional records label system? Like, what do they get? What do they lose? Oh, it's so, it's so hard. I don't envy... I don't envy artists who are pushing for that kind of success. It's it's a hard road, and there's a lot of compromises that need to be made. Uh, it's it's not it's not easy. I mean, there have always been interesting uh, contradictions and conflicts between artists and the economic system that they live in. It's funny because the artists obviously come out of the economic system, the economic structure. So, you know, our artists come out of capitalism. That's where they're born and raised. They suckle at the teat of capitalism from the time they can walk. But I, there's something about art that like pushes obviously against that, that challenges it, that is that wants to push away from capitalism while coming out of it. And so when an artist is trying to go the traditional route of success, so you know, selling lots of CDs and getting signed to a label and then getting signed to a bigger label and getting paid to play these giant stadiums and being in the TV shows and, <laughs> and being a star, like when that's the aim, I think it's a bit of a hard road. It's it's a funnel that really narrows rather quickly, and there are a lot of things that you have to have. And if any one ingredient is off, you won't get there. Uh, so, I I don't really envy people who are pushing for that route. In our community, there are some bands and artists who are pushing for that, who want to be superstars, and there are a lot who don't. Uh, there are a lot who are kind of living in the DIY community on purpose. They want to be here, uh, and they they don't really have their eyes on that as, as, as an option or as, as the vision. song is called Beyond You by from um, Philip Batika's album Invisible Backgrounds, available on Bandcamp and Weird Distro. Thanks again to Marie LeBlanc Flanagan for speaking to us, pretty much as she was just about to take off on a plane. We reached her in her home in Ottawa. You can find Weird Canada and Weird Distro online at weirdcanada.com. You're listening to All That Matters from CJSR. I'm Josh Turpin. And I'm Gwen Mann. All That Matters tells stories about arts and culture around Alberta. Each week, we take small bites out of a big question. This week, who are the gatekeepers between artists and audiences? And what are the trade-offs of going around them? Gwen, Mary was saying that musicians who want to make it big have to sort of get cozy with capitalism. So after talking with her, do you think artists who do end up signing up with a record label are selling out their artistic integrity? Well, there is a dream that all artists chase after, and we could say signing up with a big label is a lot of artists' dream. I don't think anyone could criticize that. They are selling out their artistic integrity. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Well, have you ever thought about writing a book? 
Do you know what it takes to get from your page to the reader's hands? Do I need to find an editor or a publisher? Can I do it myself? All good questions to ask for, for those interested in writing. All That Matters spoke to Edmonton's writer, Leif Gregerson, who's self-published more than half a dozen books himself. We asked Leif about the positives and negatives of self-publishing and the importance an editor and publisher play in the writing world. Well, Leif, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us at CJSR and All That Matters. It's great to be back. I used to have my own show here. Which show was that? It was called The Prose and Poetry Show. Okay. I made, uh, I think, four or five episodes, and then only one aired, and then I just, I got so overwhelmed by the by the amount of work it was and the other things I had to do that I stopped doing it, but yeah. When did you first start writing? Um, you know, I, I in a way, I've always written. Like, when I was, uh, even before I could write, um, my parents knew the best way to make me happy was to buy me a blank pad of paper. And I would draw things, and uh, I remember one drawing um, my parents saved of uh, a little stick figure with a six on a sweater, and that was the six million dollar man, if anybody remembers that. <laughs> and uh, in elementary school, my sister just reminded me actually that I would write these comic books, you know, army stories and spaceship stories and pew pew and bang bang and stuff like that. And when did you get your first book published? Um, that took quite a long process. Um, I actually started the book when I was 20. Uh, it was called uh, Through the Withering Storm. Um, it, it took about actually 20 years before it actually got published. So it was about, I think it was like 2009, 2010. And that was a self-published endeavor. How did you first find out about self-publishing? Um, I had heard about it on a number of different uh, internet ads and uh, looked into it. And I, I, I had paid a professional editor to go over my first book. They had suggested it and uh, kind of did a few Google searches. And the one I came up with was uh, basically it's an imprint of Amazon. It's called CreateSpace. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, they were I used them for my first one. And over the years, I've compared other services, and really, I think CreateSpace is one of the best deals. How many books have you self-published? I, I believe the number is up to about 10 now. I just recently put out one called uh, In the Blink of an Eye, A Journey Through Time. Uh, that one is a young adult novel, and... Um, let me, if I can count here, uh, three poetry collections, uh, three short story collections, that's six, uh, two memoirs, that's eight, and then uh, I think uh, a couple other just short books. What are some of the advantages to self-publishing? Uh, there are advantages. I think uh, something people have to realize is that uh, in order for your book to be a success, it has to be just as good as what's out there. Um, some people kind of think, you know, they can publish anything and they can they can get it out and uh, and succeed as well as published books. That's really not true. One, one of the big advantages is uh, time. You mm. can get it done a lot faster. Another big advantage is uh, per book, uh, you collect a bit of a bigger royalty. Right. Uh, a lot of conventional publishers will pay between 10 to 15% of cover price. And uh, when you're doing everything yourself, um, you can you can get up to 75% of cover price, but still your time and your editorial efforts and everything, and of course your marketing efforts, uh, you, you have to factor those in. So it gets it gets a little lower, you know, maybe you get 30%, 25%, but uh, you're still doing a little better financially than uh, with a conventional publisher. But without the advantage of distribution, um, it, it can be a difficult endeavor. 
So you're doing more work yourself, right? Yes. Yeah, you're yeah. taking over what the publishing company would do for you? Yes. How, how was that experience with that editor? Uh, the editor? Um, well, you know, it's very hard to find a good editor. I've, I've dealt with a couple of editors, and, and I've dealt with uh, people who I've paid just to go over for errors and things like that. And I hate to say, sometimes it can be pretty negative. Um, my first editor seemed to... Uh, well, I, what I wanted to do was I wanted to work with the manuscripts, and I wanted them to edit it a bit, and then mm -hmm. me to change it and, and sh show what I liked and everything. A little bit of collaboration. Yeah, but they kind of wanted to just take it, edit it, and give it back to me. Mm. And uh, so that that wasn't the best experience, but it, it did turn out to be a good book, and a lot of people have enjoyed it. So now, have you ever used a publishing company to publish a book? I have tried. Um, I've I've sent off uh, inform. I've sent I've sent off manuscripts and stuff, and. Uh, uh, nothing nothing has uh, been come back um, one of the disadvantages of a regular publisher is uh, you have to give them a lot of time uh, you send your book off it may be a year before they get back to you if they get back to you positively it may be a year before you get published and uh, you know when when you self-publish you can go in and if you have a little bit of knowledge of computers uh, you can get an order of books the next week really once the book's finished and ready to go at least, at least at my level of experience. Mm -hmm. So, what do you think is the importance of a publishing company? Um, the importance of a publishing company is that uh, somebody, somebody with with nothing basically, who uh, who just is has the ability to write, um, can go a long way with them. So then, what are some of the disadvantages to self-publishing? Uh, well, I guess I kind of kind of mentioned a couple of them. Um, the, the distribution can be difficult. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times, uh, one one of the most important things you can have, like really, if if you want to be a successful writer, uh, you kind of have to treat your your publishing effort as a business. And um, one of the disadvantages is that. Um, a lot of people don't have a lot of knowledge of business, but um, it's very important to have a marketing plan, and uh, it's very important to get media coverage, and um, it just, uh, a lot of people who are writers, um, they, they may be very good at writing and write a very good book, but unfortunately, they can have a good book, and if they're not good at some of those other things, and they're self-publishing, like the marketing and the business and all that, um, the book can be a failure, even though it's a good book. Whereas if you were able to get through a regular publisher um, and it's a good book, there's much more chance that it'll be a success. Um, yeah. Hmm. I think one of the big things about self-publishing is, uh, you know, quite often there's people that they really want to publish a book. And uh, maybe, like in my case, I kind of like the idea of, you know, making a million dollars off a book. That would be really nice. You know, who wouldn't want a million dollars? But... Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of people out there who have books, they want to get into print, um, perhaps uh, they want to tell their family's story, and they want to print just 10 copies or something to hand out to family members, something to give down, pass down through generations so that that isn't lost, and uh, that's a great way to use self-publishing. Um, as, as far as making a big success of yourself through self-publishing, um, I think you're much better off going through a conventional publisher. Uh, but there's also the factor where you can use self-publishing to establish a name for yourself. And uh, there's a lot of footwork involved. There's a lot of walking to uh, bookstores and trying to get your name in and going to editors. And 
all, all sorts of different people. When you self-publish mm-hmm. a book, um, you have a, you have to deal with a lot more external influences on your writing yeah. versus dealing just with a single editor and publishing company? Yeah, well, uh, definitely you have to deal with more external influences because you're you're publishing your books on on a local uh, mostly on a local uh, scale and um like you're you're selling at local markets, you're selling at local bookstores, and so and on also to family members and friends, and so those people are going to read it and and they're close to you, so they're going to come back. But um, really, I've gotten so much more positive info back than negative that um, you know I just want to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. What was like a great experience in terms of self-publishing where you think, "Wow, um, I'm glad I did that." Yeah. Um, there's been so many of them, uh, really. Um, there's been so many, like just just the idea of publishing a book, and I think this might have applied if I had gone the reg- the route of you know having a regular publisher. But there's been a great deal of experiences. My first book, and then uh, a sequel to that. Uh, my first book was Through the Withering Storm. It was about my teen years with bipolar disorder, and then later on, I put out a book called Inching Back to Sane, uh, which was more my adult years with bipolar disorder. And it was so rewarding when somebody who had read it would, would come back to me and say, you know, uh, I just loved it. Um, I never, some people would say, I never knew you went through that sort of thing, uh, that we're friends, you know. And, um, but really, really when it when it's great is, is when um, somebody comes up and says, yeah, well, I kind of never told anybody this, but I, I think I have bipolar disorder and um, I'm going to get help kind of thing. And. And that can be really rewarding. Um, I, I encourage I encourage everyone to write because everyone has a story to tell. Uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of events these days going on. There's a, a poetry festival in the spring. There's a thing called the Stroll of Poets I go to on Monday nights at uh, at a place near uh, the Garneau. Um, there's uh, Rouge Poetry. It's kind of a poetry slam and open mic poetry. And there's so many literary events going on, and people can get involved in these things themselves. And, and there's a lot of people with a desire to write, and, and some of these people are not creative writing students. A lot of these people are political science students like yourself, engineering students, and they just see the beauty in, in life and words, and they want to express themselves. And I think that uh, writing can be such a, a freeing experience. It can be it can be also be an experience that transcends who you are. Thanks, Leaf, for uh, for coming in and talking with us at All That Matters and CGSR, and uh, we hope to see you again at our at our show, Liquid Chatter. Oh, that'd be awesome! I'd really appreciate that. Um, just as a last note, if anyone wanted to contact me, uh, my email is Viking. That's V I K I N G, and then three zero eight two thousand at yahoo.com. So that's Viking three zero eight two thousand at yahoo.com. If you're interested in information or, you know, I'm not going to charge somebody who just wants to uh, chat a little bit about writing and stuff like that. So, you know, feel free to email me and uh, check me out on Facebook. And, uh, yeah, and I appreciate you having me down, Joshua. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Leaf. Thank you. Thanks to Leaf Gregerson for speaking with us. So Leaf says that promotion and marketing is one of the biggest challenges for self-published authors. First off, Josh, have you ever bought a self-published book? Um, you know, actually, I couldn't really tell you if it was self-published or not, because, you know, I, I don't look at the publisher normally when I read the book. It's normally something I'm interested in. Um, but I can tell you that I did write a book uh, in my early days. Um, 
I, I called it, it was Jurassic Park 4, uh, Unleash the Rest. Um, uh, apparently Steven thought it was a great idea, so he took it, and uh, <laughs> no. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so what, like, what would make you pay attention to an author trying to get the word about their book and actually buy it? Um, I, I think they have to um, really throw it in my face. First of all, it'd have to be something that I'm interested in, like a, a genre or type. And then they'd, uh, they'd have to, you know, sort of like what Netflix does. Um, that's just an example of how they really throw it in your face. You know, you'll get emails. It, it comes up right to you. Um, I think there there's going to be an evolution in the writing world where, you know, books are going to be sort of emailed to you, you know, where... You know, publishers email you um, the sort of the books that you're interested in. Um, there's this weird situation where we know artists who don't try to get uh, on a big label or don't get a big publisher aren't necessarily going the indie route because their art is bad. But then how do you trust that what you're about to buy is any good? Well, I think all art is good. It's just the different perspectives people have that make it bad. Hmm. Um, yeah, all art is good. I agree. So, I mean, I'm an artist as well. Um, even just radio is being art, I would say. Um, well, have you ever, um, what do you think about painters? I mean, do painters have to go through, they don't have to go through a publisher or, um, you know, through a recording label. Do you think it's sort of the same, uh, the same thing? Well, um, you're right. Like painters don't go through a publisher. So if you ask me, I would have no idea how they they publish their art. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess they. Uh, I guess it's sort of they have to go through the um, like a studio or a um, what do you call it? Uh, yeah, uh, you go to see a show at a. Uh, like we had a gallery, they have to go through, I guess, a gallery exhibition or something like that. A gallery has to buy their art. Right. Um, have you ever done any indie art? The last time I uh, touched art was, you could say, elementary times. Elementary times. Yeah. And um, you? You said that you're an artist, right? So what kind of art do you do? Um, well, I, I do a, a lot of theater, theater and film. My first degree is in theater, um, and I've had a few shows at some fringes and stuff like that, and then I've worked on some indie films in the past. Um, yeah. Well, we'll have to leave it there today. Uh, we'll July and August it's probably hard to plan ahead June, July, and August said It's better to bask in each other Gatekeeper seasons wait for your night That does it for this week. All that matters is the production of CGSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. Production for today's episode by Chris Chang-Yang Phillips and Sarah Cambo Alfazema. Our theme music is by Dokushitaro. Additional music today by Feist. 
If you have questions or ideas for the show, send us an email at allthatmatters@cjsr.com. You can find all our episodes on our website, allthatmatters.cjsr.wordpress.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter, where we're at ATMCJSR. By the way, if you like what you hear on this show and you want to support it, tune in for the next two weeks when we'll be doing live shows for CJSR's annual fun drive. There will be a ton of great prizes to win if you donate, and some wicked guests coming in. We've got uh, wicked guests such as Wab Canoe. So tune in, donate, and thanks. I'm Gwen Mann. And I'm Josh Turpin. Thanks for listening.